The book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 1. It's it's, uh, unknown or not agreed uh, who wrote Hebrews. I believe it's Paul. Uh, I I like the idea of Barnabas writing it because he's one of my favorite characters in Scripture. Uh, And some people think that, but really that's just kind of a made-up thing. And there's a lot of made-up reasons to think well, that's my <laughs> that's my opinion. A lot of reasons to maybe guess that somebody else wrote it. I think there's, um, well, I just believe Paul wrote it. And uh, against my flesh wanting Barnabas to write it, <laughs> I believe Paul wrote it. And he clearly wrote it to, uh, to Jewish Christians who were undergoing massive persecution. So this is uh, probably written at the end of the 60s when Nero was persecuting Christians. And it was easier for them to go back to practicing regular Judaism than to keep on being a Christian and be thrown in the lion's den or whatever else uh, Nero might have done to them for espousing uh, the truth through Christ. And so Paul is writing a follow-up to to Romans in a sense of Uh, I mean, this is just an incredible work of the mystery of God transforming a people through Jesus. And so let's get into it. About the first chapter, I will say it is, I mean, I haven't counted up the words, but it's primarily quotes from the Old Testament. He is showing the, the readers who are very familiar with the law of Moses in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, as they would call it, uh, that... Uh, everything points towards something greater coming that although the angels did the work of of the Lord to man previously that something greater has come in Jesus and so he starts out long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So if you read this again, it's very clear that Jesus and God the Father are separate. People conflate that, but the scripture never says they're the same. Um, They are different, but he is the radiance of God's glory in the world. That is what mankind is called to be. And he was the first one to actually live this out. So he is the truth, the way, the life for all the rest of us who are to pick up our cross and follow him. He lived the life Adam was not able to by completely submitting his life and living in obedience to the Father. This is how he became the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he offered himself as purification for our sins, and in doing so, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he is above every power, so he's superior to every angel, whether good or evil, He is superior to all of them. He has inherited a a much better, more excellent uh, name than them, which means his nature, who he is, is greater than any. And so then he goes on in in many different uh, passages to quote the, uh, the Old Testament 
talking about angels because it was believed if you read uh, Deuteronomy 33.2, it, uh, it talks about the law that was given to Moses was delivered by God along with 10,000 holy ones, which is, was understood to be angels. And so if the law was delivered through the help of angels, then Paul hears, or again, if I say Paul, it's because I believe Paul wrote it. Um, And you're welcome to disagree. It doesn't matter. It's the word of God either way. But I will probably often say Paul because it's just in my mind. I, I hear Paul speaking. So the author of Hebrews is comparing what the scripture says about the coming Lord and Messiah compared to angels. And it would be a wonderful study to go back and look up with a study Bible or, you know, searching the internet would be quick. You just search any of these phrases and it'll quickly show you, you'll, you'll be able to find on the first page um, where it, what it's quoting from the Old Testament. Go back and read it and see the context and see what Paul is bringing into this. That would be a powerful study. So, verse 5, for, wh- for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, okay, so just just looking at five and six, he's saying there is something greater than angels that God has always planned. And here is the proof from the Tanakh or from the Old Testament. And then he talks about, Angels, he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So he said, they're, hey, they have a role, but they're not the sun. They're not sons. Verse eight, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond and sorry, beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So he's saying the scripture talked about before that Messiah ever came, that he would be placed above all, that he would have a kingdom, that he would have authority over, that he would have companions. Again, that's, and we're going to get into that in the next chapter, but we are called to be these companions. That's God's purpose for mankind, not just to have Jesus save a bunch of lowly people, but to transform a people into a family, into a kingdom. And so he says, this has always been God's plan, that he will roll up everything like a robe, like a garment to be changed. But he will bring about this work and this work will have no end. 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We've quoted Psalm 110 often um, in it. If you go back and read it, it's very clear that God will transform a people and bring about the kingdom in great measure before the fullness of Jesus returning and the full measure is restored. 
Are they, so, and then 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so he says, angels, hey, they have a purpose. They serve the saints, those who are raised up as sons of God, bringing about the work of the Lord. The, the angels serve them. They are ministering spirits. And then we're on to chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He says, look, we have followed the Lord for, for thousands of years because he brought word by angels. And now something greater has come. The Lord's Messiah, God's Messiah, the Lord himself has actually come and many were witness to this fact. And there were signs and wonders and miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed as God willed. And we, so there are many witnesses to this thing. And if we drift away from this important fact, we lose everything. He said, we listened to angels before, but now the Lord himself is here. The Messiah we've long waited for. We cannot drift away from his truth. Verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. So again, he quotes, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then Paul says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, so he's saying, look, the, again, the Old Testament, I think he's quoting Job and Psalm. He's, he's saying that the Old Testament spoke to the fact that Jesus would be made lower. He would be made a man, a, a mortal in flesh as we are, lower than the angels, but yet he would be crowned in glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by what he lived, by the life he lived, he would be crowned in glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone so that through him we can escape uh, the penalties of sin and death. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So this is, this is a powerful part. Well, let me finish that verse. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, so let's go through this verse by verse or line by line. So the first part is, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. So we see elsewhere that, that uh, John talks about um, 
you know, he was the the sacrificial lamb slain at the beginning of the world, like at the whole world was made through him. So, so this isn't exactly discussed uh, other than this brief mention in this, in this part, um, for whom and by through whom all things exist. So it's, it's kind of a little higher than what he'd been talking about, but he just mentions it there in bringing many sons to glory. So this truth of God wanting many sons is not talked about much in the church, but it's talked about over and over again in scripture. Why is that? Well, this is a truth that needs to be known and lived out by the world, and the enemy would like to keep us from this truth. But the scripture is very clear about it, that his purpose is bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So was Jesus born perfect? No, it says he was made perfect through suffering. And it's really, this the word suffering, it's not just suffering in the way that we might initially think of it. It, it implies discipline, discipleship, training up. That's what that word entails. We discipline ourselves, and it's not pleasant to the flesh, but we know it's good for us to accomplish whatever we want to accomplish. And so God does that for us through our circumstances, through the other people in our lives, through his speaking to us directly, so that we are trained up to be transformed, to be more like him. And some of it is plain old suffering, <laughs> but when we use that word, it, it, it means discipling, discipline, being transformed into something better, godliness. And so we see that the founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. So this idea that Jesus was just born perfect and he never had to undergo any difficulties is actually an evil thing. And I don't mean to offend anyone there, but let me tell you why. It's because it, it's a spirit of religion that would make us think Jesus is so far set apart from us that we can never achieve it. It's the same thing when we call people saints and we, we sort of remove them from us. Um, the reality is we are all called to this. Many are called, few are chosen, right? I mean, not everyone goes this way, but we are called to live according to this way. We are called to be raised up to be sons of God, just as Jesus is. Now, the way we have to go is the same. There is this suffering. There is this discipleship. There is this discipline. It, 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 there's no other way. It's, again, a, a, a spirit of religion that would have us think we just accept Jesus and all of a sudden we're mature sons of God. No, we're, that's, <laughs> that's not the way it worked for Jesus. It's not the way it works for us. 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We are all one. We become unified as, as one in God. John 14 through 16 talked a lot about this, 14 through 17, that, that uh, he is completely unified with God the Father and that we are unified with them and they with us. As we go through this process of sanctification, through the suffering, discipline, discipleship, and we are sanctified by, the God, by God, by the Lord Jesus, then we become completely unified with them in all things. And then he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We, we, when we read the scripture, and, and that points again back to John 14 to 17, John's, uh, Jesus is talking about this. Um, 
we, we, there's a tendency to read every verse and just assume it automatically applies to every person. And every verse is meant to apply to every person, but not necessarily every person where they are right now. If we're living completely worldly, well, then some verses are there for us to call us to leave the world and come into his life. Some verses are meant, in this book, we'll talk about it here in a few chapters, some verses uh, and passages are meant to speak more to someone who's living their life completely unto the Lord. There's different things. And so you see a progression with how Jesus taught. And when he's teaching his disciples who are all going to give their lives to the point of death, and he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. (laughs) Well, those guys lived up to that, right? And so there's, there's a process of sanctification that must happen. Jesus went through it. We are called to go through it. And it is glorious for us if we live this. And then we become the glory of God as we live this. And so backing up again, because the, he's about to quote the Old Testament again. And so let me back up. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So again, the Old Testament talked about this reality that the many sons are to be are called. 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So again, we see Jesus here quoting Isaiah 8. To show that, again, it has been the plan of God for a long time, that there be a new people of God, and that Jesus would have many that follow after his way. What does it mean to be the child of someone? It means to be raised up to be like that person. And so Jesus is, although he's the son of God, in a couple of passages, especially in Isaiah, it calls him a father. That doesn't mean he's the God, the father, but that means he is a father to us in this new way of life, the original plan of God for mankind. 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he's saying Jesus went through everything that we go through. Not specific, like If you have a difficulty pulling yourself away from the TV or the internet, Jesus didn't specifically suffer that problem because that didn't exist. But the same concept of the difficulty of pulling yourself away from the allure of the world, he absolutely suffered through those temptations and he overcame. So he understands everything that we go through because he suffered all these things. Again, this idea that he's somehow perfect and above any temptation is blatantly against Scripture. Jesus suffered every temptation, so he knows what it is like that we are going through. He can sympathize with us, but 
more than just that, he offers us a way to overcome these things. He destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, in, in order to deliver all those. He, because everyone lives in a fear of death if we are still in the world. If you're scared of death, if you're scared of the virus, for instance, is the, you know, fear du jour, um, it, it's slavery to the world. That doesn't mean we act foolishly. It just means we're not scared of those things because we are the Lord's and his world, his kingdom, his eternal reality is far greater than anything we experience in this world. And that is what we put our trust in, our hope in, our faith in, and our fear in. We don't fear anything else but God himself. So we are not slaves, but we are free in Christ. 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So Jesus was like us in every way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He understands everything we're going through, and he has overcome. He himself suffered when tempted. He's able to help those being tempted. He is there for you and me to overcome this world, to enter into a new reality, a new kingdom, a new family, the purpose of God for your life. Jesus is the one to bring you there. And uh, that's it for today. God bless you.